Hello listeners, will you allow me a minute to tell you about Pass Test? If you haven't used them yet, you should. They are a fantastic online resource with hundreds of questions and answers covering multiple medical exams, including the MRCS, MRCP and medical finals. I've used them lots and found the resource so useful, particularly the past papers for these exams. As a listener to the podcast, you lucky people get 15% off some of these subscriptions. So don't wait around. I mean, do until the end of the episode, but then go and get your access. Links and codes will be in the show notes. Welcome to MRCS on the Moon. Bowels, bones and backseat vibers. I'm your host, Naomi, but this is the podcast where you do the talking. Hello and welcome back to the second uh, biliary disease episode. I was about to say I'll welcome back Leo, but let's be honest, he's not He's not <laughs> moved. Not moved. <laughs> <laughs> he's not moved. There you go, there's a little bit of a, an insight into how this works, secrets of recording ep- podcast episodes. Um, so we are going to dive straight back in to the uh, story we were telling about five minutes ago. <laughs> so you, you have this patient, they've come in, you've been treating them as uh, acute cholecystitis, um, they've had their antibiotics. You go around on your ward round in the morning and your F1 is like, oh, yeah, we actually forgot to do their LFTs when they first came in. Um, we've done them this morning. Um, so they bring up the blood tests and you have your LFTs in front of you. So your bilirubin is 60, your ALP is 600, and your ALT is 240. So, as the registrar in the ward round, what are you now thinking might be going on? So, uh, I'm pretty suspicious that they've got some form of obstructive jaundice. Well done. Every day. And in the context of it being painful, it's more likely to be because of a common bile duct stone, so cholidocolithiasis. How does it present acutely? So these patients tend to present with painful jaundice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, can often present in a very similar type of picture to, to what biliary colic might have presented as with this kind of spasmodic type of pain. But uh, jaundice, often clinically jaundice, if not biochemically jaundice, as we've seen in this instance here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those things that we were discussing before, the important negatives about they maybe have a change in the colour of their stools, changing the colour of their waterworks... Um, obviously their skin and sclera might change too um, and then you can see it on the blood tests that they are jaundiced what colour does the poo go? it goes like a creamy, whitey horrible colour what colour does the wee go? Uh, it goes like Coca-Cola I think is probably the best way to ask a patient if you ask a patient has your wee gone a bit darker they'll always say yes no matter what, whether it has or hasn't they'll always say oh yeah it's really dark do they so, say it looks like Coca-Cola? Coca-Cola Great. And what level, I'm throwing you some extra questions here, what level of jaundice or level of bilirubin do you expect a patient to be clinically jaundiced? Uh, I think, oh, I'm remembering the exams. 30? I think you're supposed to be able to clinically detect it about 30 or 40. It's between, uh, yeah, I always sort of 30 to 40. Yeah. You sort of expect to start Something to see like it. That. Yeah. 
We'll both sound really confident as <laughs> we give that answer. <laughs> oh, you know, in fact, in my um, in my part B, I actually got this. This was one of my stations. They asked oh, me okay. about what the constituents of bile was, and then it, I mentioned in the last episode that you can steer the conversation. And I very much steered the conversation. I spoke spoke about pre-hepatic, hepatic, post-hepatic. I spoke about introductal, ductal, extraductal. Are you just showing off now? <laughs> yes. No. So, but um, but it just meant that. So I, I scored really well in this station. <laughs> um, but but I came out of it thinking, you know what? I had a really good structure to this. I kind yeah. of knew what I was up to, and yeah. I just absolutely wiped the floor with it. It was brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So now you've. Su- suggested that you know all the answers to this, Leo. <laughs> um, not prepped, but I'm going to ask you, how would you classify jaundice and tell, elaborate on that a little bit more yeah, than you've okay. just suggested? So as, as we discussed, the, the most common way of breaking it down is thinking about where it may be coming from. So pre-hepatic, i.e. things that have gone wrong before anything's even arrived at the liver. Uh, hepatic, things that have gone wrong within the liver itself. And post-hepatic, things that have gone wrong after the liver's already done its job. So obviously we're, we're discussing post-hepatic causes here because this is some obstruction downstream. Um, so you can think about what's happening inside a lumen. So is there a stone stuck inside the common bile duct, which is then causing the pressure back upwards? There could be a stent in there that's blocked. There could be things that's wrong with the lumen itself. So there could be growths like you know, cholangiocarcinomas. There could be benign strictures as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there could also be stuff that's outside the lumen. So that's where things like extrinsic compression from pancreatic head cancers, other things. <laughs> you can get... Um, lymphadenopathy like, yeah, and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, that's, that's po- I've kind of done it a bit backwards now, haven't I? But that's post-hepatic jaundice. Mm-hmm. And hepatic jaundice is, you know, all the non-invasive liver screen blood tests yeah. that we now click a button on a computer for. The hep A, B, C, E. Yeah, think think about other things as well. So um, getting copper levels, iron levels for Wilson's disease. And all that They'll be with the medics by this point though, won't they? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had one case in Wigan and she stuck with us for a long time. And her balloon okay. was like 200 and we'd done EUS, we'd done MRCP, we'd done everything. No stones, but they, they, she stuck with us. Um, and with that just coming on to the blood tests Mm -hmm. obviously our patient has a really high ALP so that's a classic for obstructive isn't it so high bilirubin and high ALP absolutely Um, whereas your hepatic jaundice you're much more likely to see it the other way around so your ALT which is an enzyme that's released from the hepatocytes that shows you damage from your liver so that's the kind of classic difference with the blood test, isn't it? Yeah, and then pre-hepatic jaundice yeah. would normally have kind of normal ALT, normal mm-hmm. ALP, and just a high bilirubin. That's yeah. when you'd think about doing the split bilirubin for conjugated and unconjugated. Oh, now we're getting into it. That is a whole other episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think it's good to just go over that when we're talking about, well, while we as we start to talk about jaundice. So... How can it be distinguished, going back to this sort of case a little bit, how can this be distinguished from a malignant cause of jaundice? What might make you think uh, or be a bit more concerned about there being an underlying malignancy?
So uh, back to the boring stuff again, the history, mm-hmm. all, all the stuff in the, you know, p- patients who have you know, pancreatic head cancer is a common one, isn't it? They'll have weight loss. They may have had some kind of vague tummy pains. They may have had a bit of this, a bit of that, just everything not quite right. And all these little bits will add up into your mind thinking, hmm, something's not right here. But the most important thing is painful versus painless jaundice. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something called Courvoisier's Law, um, which says that you know, in the presence of a palpable, sorry, a, a palpable gallbladder in the presence of painless jaundice equals pancreatic head malignancy until proven otherwise, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not uncommonly on, on the unselected surgical take, you will get these patients who present with you know, weird and wonderful cancers, unfortunately, um, even though, you know, we don't necessarily get hugely involved from, a, from an acute perspective. But yes, mm. I think pain is the most important thing, uh, plus the other bits of history. Yeah. And it's that acute onset, isn't it? So if you're looking back at patients' bloods that they've had recently, if they've got like a slow incline in their bilirubin or derangement, then that's potentially more likely. Would that be right? It might be. Or it might, it might be. Not. Yeah. It's not wrong in that. If, Thank if, you. <laughs> in, so if, if there was a stone it's that could become right. a bile duct, then you know it's it happens like that. Yeah. Whereas with a progressive you know mass or what have you, then it may lead to a some chronicity of developing this level of jaundice. <laughs> Thank you for patronising. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. Um, what investigations should you now be considering for this patient? And if she's actually had sort of minimal pain, what might you consider instead? So there's two different investigations you might consider and different reasons why you might consider them. So well, the first thing, we, I don't know if we've got around to doing an ultrasound yet, but I was still... We've done an ultrasound. She's oh, like, this is like a super efficient hospital. Okay. She had it Cause, when Because the ultrasound in. can not only tell you if they've got stones or not and tell you about feature and cursus diagnosis. Oh, sorry, you want to talk about it. <laughs> it, will, it will also um, it'll tell it you about the, the, the diameter of a common bile duct. Mm. And obviously, you know, if you've got a dilated common bile duct, that's potentially suggestive that there is something blocking it downstream. So that's an important part to have a look at. What is the typical size of a common so bile duct? An acceptable size of a common bile duct is seven millimetres. However... Uh, as patients get a bit older, sometimes we can relax those rules a little bit. And also, if they've had a cholecystectomy in the past, then it will more than likely be a bit dilated too. Or if they've had an ERCP or sphincterotomy or whatever, it can be more, di- more dilated. Is it not their age? Right. Is that not... So Did I make that up? I, I don't know that there's any hard and fast rules. That is, is it something like... I over, thought if they were 60, 60, it could be 6. Yes. If I'm, they're 70, it can be 7 millimetres. Maybe. 80. 8 millimetres. Your answer sounded better. <laughs> I think in the context of a patient who's got deranged liver function mm. tests, if they had a dilated common bile duct, you know, even if they were 80 years old, I would be moving on to doing some more investigations. Yeah, which are? Uh, it would most likely be an MRCP. Yep. Um, but not everyone can have one with pacemakers and what have you. Um, but most commonly it would be an MRCP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's the other one you might consider if... You are slightly more concerned about malignancy, maybe. Yeah. What would you do instead? So you'd probably be doing a CT scan for those yeah. patients. Yeah. So they're they're much better at picking up soft tissue masses than some other for, other imaging modalities. So I would mm-hmm. do a CT instead. Okay. I guess you could also, if 
either of those are you know inconclusive or you're not quite happy or what have you, you'd move on to an endoscopic ultrasound, which is technically the gold standard for looking at tiny mm. stones in a bowel duct. Okay. Um, so, but that's you know that's probably getting ahead of ourselves a bit. Okay. Um. So, next question: What are the sort of possible outcomes of this situation? So, I'll just remind you at the moment we have a patient who we think has a um, stone in their common bowel duct. They're quite well at the moment. We'll, you know, they've you know they've not got a temperature anymore. Um, so what what could happen to this patient in the next few days? So uh, not uncommonly, these stones can pass themselves. Uh, you know, the liver function tests will get better, their pain will get better, uh, and they may not need anything doing any more acutely. Uh, the, the stone may not pass itself, and we might have to do something about it, like an ERCP. Uh, go do a sphincterostomy and try and get the stones out. Um, these patients are high risk for developing cholangitis, um, so they could start spiking temperatures again. They could start uh, with rising CRP, rising white cell count, inflammatory markers, becoming septic. Uh, or lastly, they could develop gallstone pancreatitis from the mm -hmm. stones that slip through. Yep. Great. So we're going to talk about, we've talked about pancreatitis in a previous episode. So we're well, going to... I really enjoyed it, by the way. Did you? Yeah, that one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, everyone I, go and check out <laughs> um, episode. I don't know which one it is. So far. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I didn't really... Did I understand it? I, did, I kind of understood it. <laughs> That's when, the aim of the episode. Because no, no, you were telling me about uh, trypsinogen into trypsin, the early activation of all these enzymes. Oh, yeah. I remember listening in the car. I really remember that. Oh, good. Anyway, it was a good episode. There we go. We're gonna check it out, guys. I can't remember what number it is <laughs> off the top of my head, but there we go. Um, so she starts to get fevers, inflammatory markers start going up. We now think she's developing an acute cholangitis. Um, what is the definition of an acute cholangitis? So acute cholangitis is, uh, as defined by Charcot's triad, uh, right quadrant pain, jaundice, and a fever. Mm -hmm. And essentially all cholangitis means is inflammation of the biliary tree. Now in this context, as in most contexts, we're talking about an infection causing inflammation of the biliary tree. Um, there is something called Reynolds Pentad, which includes Charcot's triad, but also um, hypotension and delirium. So the, just describing how quickly these patients can become very sick, very confused, you know, body systems start failing quite quickly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a serious one to keep on your mind because they can become very sick very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's how they present. Um, what is the initial management of of these patients? We're going to be reiterating a few points here, just to hammer it home. Uh, yeah, so 
again, exam answer is you know, your A to E assessment, um, initiation of the sepsis bundle. Um, the important things really are, if, if you truly think someone's got a common bile duct stone and they're sick with it, then they need to be decompressed. They, mm-hmm. they, you need to get the pus out of that biliary system. And so if they are fit enough, which most of the time patients are, um, then you want to try and get them to the endoscopy suite sooner rather than later for an ERCP. So that means that all the little things, you know, make sure that the coagulation's normal, make sure they've got the valid group and save sample, the stuff that will otherwise hold you back by a few hours when this patient's already sick in ICU or what have you. Um, so yeah, you need to decompress the biliary system. ERCP is the most common way of doing things. But uh, you can do a chelicystostomy. You literally just put a tube into the gallbladder and that decompresses the system. Um, or yeah, a PTC. Great. So, coming to the end now. Finally, um, this lady, she's been treated with an ERCP for a CBD stone. She's discharged and booked for a lap coli. However, due to our terribly long waiting lists, she has two years of multiple episodes of acute um, cholecystitis, she's in and out of hospital, she ends up with pretty consistent right upper quadrant pain. Then one day she presents to ED with a distended abdomen and vomiting. Given this history, what would you be suspicious of? Go for it. Gallstone ileus. Yeah, gallstone ileus. So what is a gallstone ileus? <laughs> So gallstone ileus, it's, it's almost a bit of a misnomer, really, the word ileus, because it is a true, you know, luminal obstruction. Um, basically, it's it's a big old gallstone that's managed to make its way um, through the small bowel, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But it's got it's got to the next tightest part of the of the gastrointestinal tract, which is the ileocecal valve. It's a big stone that goes and gets stuck there and doesn't let anything through anymore. So basically, you get small bowel obstruction from it. Mm-hmm. And how does it occur? So um, you form a cholecystoduodenal fistula. Mm-hmm. So gallbladder to duodenum, the two structures are pretty close to each other. And either, you know, recurrent attacks of acute cholecystitis and or chronic cholecystitis, and essentially a massive stone starts wearing its way through your gallbladder wall into the duodenum. So it obviously doesn't go through the biliary system because those tubes are quite small, but it's a big stone that gets into your duodenum that way. Uh, and then goes and blocks off your ileocecal valve. Mm-hmm. And what would you typically see on a CT scan other than the small bowel obstruction? So yes, as, as you say, you'll see you know lots of loops of small bowel that's dilated. You may well see a calcified stone down at the ileocecal valve. Um, you'll see evidence of the cholecystoduodenal fistula, and importantly, you'll see air in the gallbladder um, you know, as, as evidence of that fistula. Great. And what's the management? What are you going to do for these patients? So, again, <laughs> A to E. You know, you know, assess and resuscitate your patient appropriately and escalate them as you think is necessary. Um, but as with any luminal obstruction, you're going to drip and suck. So get an mm-hmm. NG tube down, uh, get a bit of fluid going, get a catheter in to monitor the urine output, all that kind of stuff. Um, but this is not going to get itself better unless we do something about it. So you're going to have to get them ready for theatre. Um, now, people who are proficient at laparoscopy may do 
an enterotomy laparoscopically, you remove the stone and sew things back together, um, and then you know that's literally a job done. Or you know quite commonly still you do almost just like a mini laparotomy uh, and retrieve your stone and then sew things back together. And you go, you make your incision proximal, don't you? To yeah, in so the dilated bit and then you milk it back. A, a few centimeters proximal. Yeah. 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 So so you you don't really want to be doing anything too close to the IVC sequel valve if you mm. can really um, because you know whilst yes we've got obstruction at the moment the, the IVC sequel valve does produce a, a degree of pressure and so any sutures or what have you any repairs any anastomosis anything like that that's near the IVC sequel valve if it's under pressure under tension mm. then that risks a leak doesn't it so yes exactly as you mentioned a bit proximal if you can yeah great I think that's that thank you very much Leo for me. that was great that was I hope fun. you enjoyed it yeah. <laughs> and um, thank you for listening again everyone I think we've covered some really good stuff there with billowy stuff and it's great for the exams and I think all that will be really helpful for your day to day job as well so yeah take care and I'll be back soon bye bye oh well a dim bone dim bone dim dry bone